Welcome to Our Story, Your Story, the video podcast where we share our personal experiences and invite you to share yours. We are Toby Eunice and Shelley Carney, and together we'll take you on a journey through our lives and the lives of our family, friends, and guests. We believe that everyone has a story to tell, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. So whether you're looking for inspiration, entertainment, or simply a good story, you've come to the right place. Hello, and welcome to Our Story, Your Story. I'm Shelley Carney. And I'm Toby Yunus. Thanks for joining us today. And today we'll be reading from A Gypsy's Kiss, A Treasure Hunt Adventure. We're going to get into chapters 32 and 33. We're getting close to the end, and we're going to have to make some decisions about what to do after we finish the book. Are we going to have guests? Are we going to tell different stories? Or what are we What are we going to do? We're going to have to figure that out. So if you have any suggestions for us, let us know what you uh, would like to see us do or see us do more of or less of. <laughs> any suggestions are welcome as long as they're polite. (laughs) So um, we're going to get into chapter 32, Interrogation, and chapter 33, Jim Garrison. But if you remember last week, Miguel was picked up by the police and uh, brought to the police station where uh, there was a lot going on. Um, There was an angry man they brought in, and, and he was a little bit afraid of being around that man and um, the police did him the favor of putting him in a holding cell by himself. And uh, anything else that you can think of that is important from last time? No, no. He always found himself comfortable in a jail cell, which kind of bothers me now. (laughs) Well, you knew you were safe. Yeah. That was the important thing. Uh, Remember this is 1964 and Toby wasn't really, Toby, I say Michael, Miguel, wasn't really in trouble because he hadn't done anything illegal. They were just trying to figure out what comes next. Well, and it was also done in the background context of the fact that they knew, which I didn't know at that time, Mm -hmm. I find out later, but they knew what had happened at La Tranche. Mm -hmm. So they just didn't know, you know, they'd already spoken... uh, with Mariah, her father, and um, Jean Nou. Grandfather. Mm-hmm. Grandfather, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, let's get into that because we're going to hit a couple of those high points too. Uh, chapter 33, Interrogation. Once he locks me in, I lay down on the bunk, resting my head in my hands, and begin thinking about Mariah and what had happened to her. Where had she gone? Why did she leave me? I think about the trip, the people I met, and riding the BSA. Where's the motorcycle and my kit? I feel lost without it. I miss my school, my friends, the Christian brothers, my sister, my brothers, my mother, and especially my father. My thoughts are not quite as mixed up as a dream would be, but I feel like I'm dreaming with my eyes open. I don't remember falling asleep. I awaken to the sound of a quick knock on the opening door. I try to remember where I am. A tall man in a gray suit, black tie, white shirt, and black wing-tipped shoes introduces himself to me. I'm Detective Lacoste. Come with me, son. We're going to talk. I get up to follow him. We walk down the hall to another that is perpendicular to the first and walk down that hallway as police officers pass in the opposite direction with suspects. Police officers pass us, walking in the same direction without any suspects. One more perpendicular hallway to the left, and Detective Lacoste opens the second door. I notice the sign on the door. It reads, Interrogation Room Number 3. Inside the the interrogation room, there are three chairs, aside a long metal table with a hard rubber top made for writing. There is a bar, about 10 inches long, bolted to the top of the table. I imagine if I was wearing handcuffs, they would be attached to that bar. Detective Lacoste directs me to the single chair on the far side of the table. He takes one of the two opposite me. There is a knock on the door, and a very official-looking woman enters the room, rolling a stand in front of her. Atop the stand is something that looks like a typewriter, but more compact, with fewer oddly-shaped keys and a roll of paper, similar to one you'd see on an office calculating machine. 
she sits down in the third chair and swings what I later find out to be a stenograph machine in front of her. When she is settled, she nods at the detective, letting him know he can proceed. He opens a manila file folder in front of him, which holds several pieces of paper, including my check-in form, the motorcycle registration, my motorcycle driver's license, and the slip of paper on which Uncle Carlos's phone number is written. Interesting. Where's my satchel? You just really don't know where anything is, mm-hmm, do you? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm dressed in dark blue. And, and, and you're not, don't even have the excuse that you're an old man yet. Yeah. <laughs> I should have gotten used to the idea that I'd always never know where, <laughs> where stuff is. Yeah. He looks straight across the table at me and says, First of all, son, I want you to know that you are not under arrest. You have not been charged with any crime, and I am not about to interrogate you. I'd like to ask you some questions, and I hope you can give me some answers that will fill in the blanks. You don't have to answer any of them if you don't want to. If you want an attorney present, I can arrange it. He gestures toward the woman to introduce her. This is Miss Davidson. She's going to document our conversation. Miss Davidson already started typing what he is saying. He finishes with, do you understand what I've said? I nod my head, and he tells me, I need you to respond out loud. So I say, yes, I understand. Would you like an attorney? No, thank you. He looks at my driver's license. Michael. I interrupt him. It's Miguel. It says here your name is Michael. Michael Eunice. Well, sir, it's like this. I attend St. Michael's High School, and I sing in the choir at San Miguel Chapel. Where I come from, they are interchangeable. I prefer Miguel. All right, Miguel. We'll go with that. First, I'd like you to validate the information on this driver's license for me. I state, Eunice, Michael, and recite my home address. What kind of license is this? It's a motorcycle-only license. I'll get my driver's license next year. So you're on your motorcycle? I was, yes. I rode it here. You rode your motorcycle all the way from... He glances at my license. Santa Fe? Yes. And you were alone? Yes. What made you do that? I wanted to see Mardi Gras. You wanted to see Mardi Gras? (laughs) He exchanges a glance with Miss Davidson. He turns back to me to ask, Do your parents know where you are? My father is dead, and no, my mother doesn't know where I am. Who does know where you are? My uncle. Your uncle? He gave you the motorcycle? He let me borrow it. And where is he? He lives in a small town north of Santa Fe. It's called Abiquiu. Spell that for me. A-B-I-Q-U-I-U, I reply. Thank you. So, where's your motorcycle now? I don't know. I left it with the New Orleans Police Department last night. What do you mean you left it with the police department? I left it at the impound lot at the end of Bourbon Street. There is another officer standing outside the door. Detective Lacoste calls out, A bear! The officer with his back to the door looks over, and when he does, Lacoste waves him into the room. Lacoste hands A bear the registration slip to the BSA, saying, Do me a favor. See if you can find this in impound. Officer A bear takes the registration slip and leaves the room. I hope he will return with information about the BSA and how I can get it back. It's the last time I see him. We continue the conversation about me for the next 45 minutes. Detective Lacoste finishes by saying, Thank you. I really appreciate your honesty. There's one last thing I'd like to cover. He looks at Miss Davidson saying, Thank you, Miss Davidson. Please send the transcript to my desk. With that, she looks at me and says, Good luck. Packs her things and leaves the room, rolling the stenograph machine in front of her. Flipping a page in the manila folder, he looks at me in a very serious manner and asks, Do you know any of the following people? He reads from the paper and recites three names. Mariah Marie Noray, Jacques Denois Noray, or Jean-Luc Toussaint? Quizzically, he looks up at me. Yes, sir, I do. How do you know them? I spent a good part of last evening and last night with Mariah. I met her grandfather, Jacques, and I had a brief encounter with Jean-Luc. Encounter? 
Tell me more about the encounter. We were in Mariah's room at a place called La Tranche. She introduced me to her grandfather. Then Jean-Luc burst into the room, pulled out a knife, yelled something in French that I didn't understand, and stabbed Mariah's grandfather when he stepped in front of him. Why do you think he stabbed Mariah's grandfather? I think Jean-Luc was coming for me. Mariah's grandfather stopped him. Telling this story stings me with the fear that up until now I hadn't allowed myself to fully feel. That emotion is quickly followed by concern. By the way, is Mariah's grandfather all right? Yes, fortunately he is. He's in the downtown hospital recovering. He's a tough old coot. I breathe a small sigh of relief, then ask as nonchalantly as possible, and Mariah? We don't exactly know, but we think she's with her family in the bayou. What about Jean-Luc? I worry that he will cause more trouble for Mariah and her grandfather. He's in custody. Jacques isn't talking. So eventually we'll have to let him go. Jean-Luc has deep pockets and we and can afford any attorney in New Orleans he wants. He pretty much runs things in Algiers. Scanning through his written notes, then looking up quickly, Detective Lacoste asks intently, Why was he coming after you? I don't know. He was yelling at everybody in French, waving a knife. Then he came after me. Maybe it's because I was with Mariah? Yeah, he accepts this possibility. That's probably it. Detective Lacoste stands up, closes the folder, saying, Well, Miguel, that's all I have for now. I'm going to take you back to holding cell. Before I stand up, I ask, When are you going to let me go? He chuckles and responds, As soon as we can figure out what to do with you. Why not just let me go now? Because eventually I'd have to explain that decision in court to a judge who wouldn't be happy with that response. I suppose I could even be charged with dereliction of duty. So we'll just let this play out, okay? And nod my head. Let's get you back to your cell. Chapter 34, Jim Garrison. I spend the night in the holding cell, and although I try to sleep, it is fitful at best. Tossing and turning on the thin mattress atop the concrete bonco, it's difficult to get comfortable. Everything in my mind is a jumble, especially thinking about Mariah and running every moment through my brain to analyze each interaction and what it might mean. I worry about what I'm going to say to my mother, Uncle Carlos, and Brother Bartholomew if I ever see them again. I am certain New Orleans police aren't going to set me free to travel on my own. I figure they know everything they need to know to get me back to Santa Fe. Eventually, too tired to do anything else, I fall asleep. I wake up to the opening of the door and another officer entering the room with a metal tray that contains my breakfast. He lays it upon the sink, saying, Time to eat, buddy. Then get yourself cleaned up. The DA wants to talk to you. The district attorney? I wonder what that's all about. Maybe he'll let me go. I set up to eat breakfast from the tray in my lap. When I'm done, I knock on the door and one of the officers takes the empty tray from me. I brush my teeth and use a washcloth to rinse myself off in the sink and dry myself with one of the towels I had been given. I sit back down on my bunk, waiting for the next event. About a half hour later, another officer opens the door. Gonna take you up to meet with the DA. Gonna trust you without cuffs? Yes, sir. We leave the holding area, go past the sergeant's desk, out a pair of swinging doors and into a short hallway that leads to an elegant ivory marble open space with light cascading through stained glass windows and statues of men all around. We cross the large open space, the officer's hard heels clacking across the floor, until we arrive at a pair of polished brass elevator doors. He presses the elevator call button, and a few seconds later, the doors open to let us in. We turn around, and he presses the button to the third floor. A few seconds later, the elevator opens to let us out. We exit into another marble hallway regulated on either side with finely polished woodwork interspersed with wooden doors sporting polished brass handles and glass windows that are labeled in gilt letters. At the end of the hallway, there is a set of double doors. He steps in front of me and opens one of them, ushering me into an elegant carpeted office space. There is a woman sitting at a desk. She is wearing a formal dark blue business suit and a silk blouse with a strand of pearls around her neck. As we enter the office, she looks up at us, and the officer says to her, Mr. Eunice. She leans across her desk to push the button on the intercom, saying, 
Mr. Garrison, your interview is here. A voice responds, bring him. Then the intercom clicks before the sentence is finished. She rises from her seat and guides me in a firm but friendly manner by taking my arm and leading me through large wooden double doors with polished brass handles. When I walk in, Garrison is on the phone with someone. He points to one of two large leather-covered chairs in front of the desk, indicating for me to sit down. His conversation is one-sided, mostly listening and making notes while the other party provides information. He hangs up the phone, picks up the yellow legal notepad in front of him, comes around to the other side of the desk to where I am sitting, and sits down in the other chair facing me. He sticks his hand, sticks, he sticks out his hand and introduces himself. I'm Jim Garrison, District Attorney for the City of New Orleans. You're Michael, right? Miguel, sir. Miguel, that's right, sorry. Garrison looks down at his notes and says, I read your file and I talked to the detective who interviewed you yesterday. I also spoke to the officers who picked you up on Wednesday. The bottom line, young man, is that at this point, I'm not sure what to do with you. You haven't committed any crimes. We believe you are a witness to a crime, but that will work itself out with or without you. You're not the type of runaway that we normally come across here in New Orleans. So let me ask you, what should we do with you? Well, sir, without any money or my motorcycle, I suppose it would be crazy for both of us just to let me go. I think long and hard about what I'm going to say next. I want to make sure I believe in it. When I started this trip, I had a plan. I was going to ride beyond my visit to New Orleans, making my own way in my own life. But on this trip, I've learned a lot about myself and others. I'm certain there will be a day when I can make my own decisions and choices. But today is not that day. After a short pause, I say, I'd like to go home. He asks me, you sure that's what you want? Yes, I am. I had seen enough of the world to know that there's both good and bad. While I appreciated the good, I wasn't yet prepared to handle the bad. He stares directly into my eyes for what seems like a full minute, though I'm sure it is less. He says with finality, All right, Miguel, that's what we'll do. We'll send you home. I want you to go back to the holding area with the officer and get a good night's rest. We'll get you on your way tomorrow. Before I leave, I say, Thank you, sir. He responds, No problem, son. Safe travels. Garrison presses a button on his intercom, and a few seconds later, the nicely dressed woman comes in to retrieve me. She turns me over to the young police officer. He returns me to my holding cell. I eat the dinner that is brought to me and ask for something to read. They bring me a copy of the day's New Orleans newspaper. Although I couldn't find anything written about Jacques or Jean-Luc, I read every inch of every column, learning about what had happened to the rest of the world while I was traveling. I felt good about what I had accomplished. I turn out the lights and think about Mariah. It seems to me that Mariah and her grandfather shouldn't have to live in fear of Jean-Luc. Why wouldn't Jacques talk to the detectives and charge Jean-Luc with a crime? Are there really no alternatives for them? Why do people like Jean-Luc believe they can buy everything and everyone? That can't be right. That isn't justice. Every person has choices they can make in every situation don't they? Comparing Mariah's situation with my own makes me feel a little ashamed. Before I left St. Michael's to begin this adventure, I thought I was being told where and how to live by my mother and the Christian brothers. I resented it. But when I look at Mariah's life, my own is pretty great. I have the freedom to choose my activities, my friends, and what I do in my free time. Mariah doesn't have that freedom. How must Mariah feel being told not only where and how to live, but that she and her grandfather are always in mortal danger if they step outside those expectations. I've got to find some way to help her. But how? I'm being sent home by the police. I don't have my motorcycle or the money I have tucked away inside it. What do I have to offer her? Does Mariah even want my help? She left me alone in the cemetery. Perhaps that was her way of saying goodbye and not to follow her. <coughs> She didn't seem to be the kind of person to ask others to help her out of her situation. She just accepts her life as it, as it is with that whole French c'est la vie attitude. I fall asleep without coming to any helpful conclusion. 
And that was your time in jail. Stenography. <laughs> Stenography? Yeah, from the Greek stenos uh -huh. and graphis. Mm. Stenos reads, means narrow. Narrow. Graphis is writing. Narrow writing? Narrow writing. Oh. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So, as usual, as your son Jared would say, uh, <laughs> everything just turned out right every, for him. Every, nobody's mean to me yeah. except for uh, Jean Luc. Yeah. Uh, things are, are turning out better than I could have hoped for, considering A, the conditions, and B, I had no expectations. I, I never expected by visiting Mardi Gras, going through that evening and now the next couple of days, that that would be my experience. Uh, totally unplanned, totally unexpected. So so I have to consider, now that I listened to you read that uh, as we wrote it, I have to consider how fortunate it was that um, if you look back at the, at the events of the past couple of days, I'm actually in a pretty good place even though I didn't expect to be in that place. I didn't expect to be in a bad place, mm -hmm. but I didn't expect to be in that place. And so I think the outcome was good in the sense that it could, the outcome could have been a variety of things from a negative one to a 10. And I'm someplace in between. Mm -hmm. The negative one being uh, a body flowing in the Mississippi River out to the uh, Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> that would be very negative, yes. Yeah, that would be very negative. So uh, I, I felt like I was in a very fortunate place, and I think that's why I was trying to be as cooperative. I, I wasn't a, well, I was going to say I'm not, I wasn't rebellious, but in some ways I was, but I wasn't antagonistically rebellious. I wasn't that kind of person. I didn't go looking for trouble. You were or just independent. You were yeah, yeah, I didn't go looking for trouble, and I didn't try to make trouble for anybody else. The other thing that I experienced at this point is I, I'm, I had friends in high school that I cared about. I had friends in uh, elementary and middle school that I cared about, mostly because nobody else cared about them. Uh, a couple, one friend, Larry, who Larry Walker, who I remember to this day, had um, uh, I can't remember the name of the disease. It was common back then, and you don't see it as many, as much today. Cerebral palsy. Cere cerebral palsy, and um, he was older than all of us in elementary school. Uh, he struggled with, of course, the cerebral palsy because it, it it you lose your balance. But I befriended him because nobody else would, and and I I didn't like the bullying. Um, it was the same in in. Uh, in high school where I gravitated towards the people that people wouldn't naturally gravitate towards. My best friend was, um, um, Skip, mm -hmm. Rob, Rob Williams. And he was also my chess partner. And, um, he, he did have friends, but he had to put up with the bullying just like, and this was, an, you got to remember we were in an all boys school, right? Mm -hmm. So the bullying was even more extreme. Mm. Um, so, but I, uh, what I discovered in myself, what I hadn't thought about before, and I mean, before that point in New Orleans was that I could empathize or show empathy for others. And that's what I was experiencing with Mariah and her grandfather. Like, why, why can't they live their lives free without the, uh, you know, the stigma associated with being, uh, associated with being with, um, Jean-Luc. And uh, it was a good recognition for me. It it was um, something in me that I appreciated in myself, that I had the ability to empathize with others, uh, you know, uh, it, not of necessarily of less means or less capability, but I could empathize. And I think that's an important char characteristic for an individual um, who wants to carry themselves the, the rest of their way through life. And uh, it was a good feeling, you know. And I think uh, I think Garrison saw some of that. I had the feeling he, for the person he was, and for the this his storyline, which didn't turn out well for him in the end. Um, 
I had a sense that he was uh, very incisive, that as he was talking to me, he was, and you could tell he was just analyzing me the whole time. And he was trying to figure out, you know, who I was, what kind of personality I was, what he could do for me. I have a feeling that I had I been um, uh, more rebellious or, you know, angry and that kind of thing, combative, I think it would have turned out differently. He might have, well, no, I shouldn't say that. It would have turned out the same. He just wouldn't have been as happy to do it. Yeah. And I got a sense he was really, you know, for a guy that was a district attorney of a pretty difficult uh, parish in New Orleans or in Louisiana, um, he he seemed perfectly reasonable, perfectly intelligent, per- perfectly empathetic. Um, so I was pleased to have ended up effectively in his hands. When you first started talking about this, uh, you're like kind of happy-go-lucky and kind of stumbling into things mm-hmm. in, in situations. It reminds me of the uh, the first card in in the uh, tarot, the fool. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just see him, jo- you know, jogging along with his dog and skipping along his merry way and just uh, everything kind of turns out mm-hmm. for him, you know, because I think the universe is watching out for us. You know, we always hear... Um, that things don't happen to you, they happen for you. Mm-hmm. So everything that was going to happen to you would be for your growth, right? So everything that happened moved you further along in life. And, and the question is, and I agree with you, that everything that does happen uh, shouldn't happen to you. It should happen for you and allow you to grow. You just have to be willing to accept that offer of growth. And if I remember correctly, the tarot card, the fool, is always about uh, opportunity, right? That not And the importance of being able to recognize that opportunity mm-hmm. in the same way that the death card in tarot doesn't represent death. It begins the end of something and the beginning of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not that I knew anything about it at, this, at that point in my life. But um, I just, it gave me a great deal of confidence dealing with the people who I thought, who I knew, unlike Jean-Luc, didn't want to hurt me um, and wanted the best for me. And I didn't know the background. I didn't know that they knew about Mariah and uh, Jacques and and, um, uh, Jean-Luc. I didn't know they had already been in touch with the people in New Mexico. And uh, so they had that all, they had that all worked out. So when they were putting me on a train, they were not, they knew they were not putting me on a train without knowing what was going to happen to me. Um, Could they have imagined that there was a point in all of that, that I said to myself, well, this is my chance to make the big break. (laughs) Right. And, uh, and of course we'll get into that in, in, um, in future chapters. Uh, But it was a great deal. I think it was uh, a mutual, trust and mutual appreciation for who we were and what we did, right? An adventurous teenager and a highly professional, well-regarded district attorney. <clears throat> yeah, a little black on the side there. I have a what? A little black line oh, on the side You know there. what? I moved the, yeah, moved this into the wire. Oh, gosh. So okay, some of the go. themes and emotions that we have uh, brought up here is... Miguel, being a teenager, is thrust into a situation where he has to confront the harsh realities of the world. The contrast between his naive expectations of Mardi Gras and the events that unfold in Mariah's room highlight the loss of innocence. So he starts out innocent, pretty innocent, when he falls over when he falls over on his motorcycle. And then throughout the night, he's getting more and more experienced, like kind of all jammed mm-hmm. into one night. Uh you know, all the way from going to Latrange, do you know what this is? And then going upstairs and, you know, and the conversations that they had and then the the scene where he comes in with the knife and jumping into the river and getting out of the river and going into the cemetery. There's just a whole lot going on in one night. It's kind of funny if you think about some of these movies that are like, uh, you know, transitional like that, mm-hmm. transformational like that, and it's it all happens in one night, and you're like, oh, come on, that not everything yeah. can happen yeah. in one night. But obviously, it does. Mm-hmm. So it was a couple of things. Number one, I, I, I don't know whether I was 
innocent as innocent as I wanted uh, to believe I was, meaning I was not that so innocent that he didn't run away from school, borrow a motorcycle from my uncle and traipse across three states um, uh, to get done what I wanted to do. So there, it wasn't quite as that innocent. But the innocence, part of it comes out as you meet all the individuals that I did along the way and uh, found out that, uh, that the things that I probably should have been afraid of uh, didn't happen you know, didn't happen until I met Jean-Luc. And then, and then, uh, as you say, by the time the nights, from the time the night started with a, a little peck on the cheek, you know, and, and all that romance to, to jumping out the window, uh, by that time, innocence is gone. Like, you know, the, the person that started that night uh, or the per person that ended that night is completely different from the person that started that night, but not in a way because there's uh, things can affect you in a couple of different ways. One way is that it makes you even worse of a person or more uh, more negative towards your life situation. Uh, another way is that you survive it and you're just grateful to have survived it. Uh, and another way is, wow, that was amazing. Uh, I wonder what happens next in life. And that's kind of where I was at this point. And I wanted to, I wanted to get, one of the reasons I want to get back, I wanted to get back was to get back and calm everybody down. Like, okay, I'm back, you know. <laughs> and um, then tell the story. <laughs> yeah. And, and my mother, uh, for example, never asked much about it. Mm -hmm. She never heard the full story. If she, mm -hmm. if she read that book, mm -hmm. if she had been alive to read that book, she would have been completely surprised by it because we didn't have that conversation. I had conversations with my friends. They wanted to hear all about it. I did have conversations with my uh, sister. She wanted to hear about it, mm. but it was very, it was all kind of giggly for her, you know, mm. oh, oh, that, it, did that really happen? You, you know, Michael, mm -hmm. did that really happen? Um, <laughs> and, um, and so, but my mother never heard the story. Yeah. You know, well, it's she not knew. uncommon for no, for teenagers no. not yeah. to tell their parents everything that well, happened. <laughs> well, she knew she knew like the uh, police departments and the district attorney's offices side of the story. We found your son; he was not in a good situation, but he's okay. He's fine. How do we work this out to get him home? So she knew that much, mm -hmm. right? But as usual, she was just kind of angry at the fact that I had done it to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Moving forward, we have, uh, so we talked about justice, law enforcement, the legal system. We kind of went into that um, more last week. So mm -hmm. moving on to contrast of lifestyles. Miguel's reflection on his own life compared to Mariah's life emphasizes the disparities in choices and opportunities. This theme uh, about privilege, socioeconomic differences, and empathy. Um, it it. That plus um, compassion and empathy, Miguel's contemplation of Mariah's limited choices and his desires to help her reflects themes of compassion and empathy. And you mentioned it, but I it makes me think about, so when I'm in that grief group, <clears throat> listening to other people's stories, mm. I think that was the thing that first started to push me out of my grief because I could see like, I didn't have it that bad. I didn't mm. have to have it that bad. Mm. You know, I was very lucky compared to what some of these people went through. Um, you know, having a spouse who went through years of dementia and not recognizing them and not having the, the cognitive function to even get, go out of the house towards the end. And it's just, just very sad, you know, and I, I could easily say, I don't need to be so sad because mm -hmm. it wasn't that bad for me mm -hmm. and um, their journey was so much worse. So I think when we start comparing our lives to other people's like in that way, we, we can see that, you know, I'm not a victim. I'm not uh, unlucky. I'm not, you know, life is not being harsh to me. I had it pretty good. And, uh, you know, you can start to empathize with those people who do have it worse than you. And you're like, you know, well, let me just let you have this mm -hmm. because you you need this more than I do, right, kind of a thing. 
The other thing is that once you you uh, gain that acceptance of the difference between their perspective and yours, it gives you the opportunity to offer um, uh, what I'd call sincere support, right? It's easier for you to say, you know what, uh, compared to what's going on there, uh, I'm in pretty good shape. I mean, I didn't come from a wealthy family, but I came from a family that had their houses where, you know, I had a roof over my head, clothes on my back and food on the table. Mm -hmm. And even after my father died, he left my mother in such good position. We didn't go destitute. She always had a station wagon to take us to school, et cetera, et cetera. And that pretty much was my life as I grew up. Now, as I made progress in life, yeah, there were better things and I could offer my children more, but uh, it was, uh, uh, I was very aware of the fact that I would run into people that didn't have that, whether it was the result of the not the same opportunity or how they grew up or who they had to deal with in their families. And it always made, I don't, I don't want to say made me feel, but I always felt like there was something that I could do to help. And I think I've told you this story, you know, the story of the foster babies that we took and we got into foster baby because, uh, Foster parenting. Uh, foster parenting because uh, uh, Laura had just basically forged my name. I wasn't around, but she wanted to do it. And when I found out, you know, my rule, no pets, no plants, no pool, I would lose out on all of those because she had a different opinion about all of those things. But when there were foster babies, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be interesting. Because by this time, our youngest, Toby Renee, was starting um, – kindergarten. Mm. She was about to go off to school. Mm -hmm. And uh, our kids, because Laura was home, our kids didn't have to go to preschool. They they were at home. They were Their mother mm -hmm. was there to take care of them. I brought home the bacon, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but she was off to school. And I don't know what happened in the sense that Laura went like, okay, I just need more babies around. And the experience for not only me, no pets, no plants, no pool, but the children was all very positive because these are babies. They're literally coming out of the hospital and we take, we would take care of them until uh, their um, uh, adoptive parents, until the paperwork had cleared. And sometimes it was two weeks and sometimes it was in one case, 12 months. Uh, but it was such a good experience for everyone because you couldn't help, but they're babies like, you can't not take care of them. Take care of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so was, I think I think that's where the girls got a lot of their uh, sensibility when it comes to empathy and feeling for others and wanting to do for others. You know, uh, I don't know that they'll ever adopt or, or get into foster care, uh, but you can tell just by the things they do, you know, wanting to help soccer, coach soccer and things like that. Um, so I'm glad that they inherited that. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I, I don't feel like they, it was inherited from me. It was inherited from the situation that Laura, I was going to say Laura, put us into. I don't feel that way about it. You know, Laura made a decision, and we pretty much made the best out of it, and it made us better people, you know, all, all of us. So, um, and I think having that kind of um, sincerity and empathy for the rest of the world that doesn't have it as good as you um, is a good place to be in life. And yeah. I think it's, you know, positively karmic. Well, yeah. Plus, like you said, it makes you a better person. It, it's like when people say they adopted an uh, animal from the mm -hmm. shelter and he rescued me, you know, because mm -hmm. that's taking care of something or someone who needs you. Well, it's more like it, it it helps raise your self-esteem because mm -hmm. look, I can take care of this animal or this child. Um, so I'm responsible. And because you have to be responsible for a pet or a child, it makes you be more uh, responsible for your own health, mm -hmm. uh, your situation, your living situation, your career, whatever it is that you need to do in order to, take care of that one who is depending on you. You you know that one of the reasons we're moving to South Carolina was because of the grandbabies. And you look at them as they're running around in their little 
avatar outfits, <laughs> uh, you're thinking to yourself, I just want to live as long as I can to see how far this gets. I would yeah. love to see Maddie graduate from college. Oh, yeah. Now that's what, 20 something years <laughs> off. So I don't Unless know she's a make... genius. Yeah. Uh, but it's the impetus that one needs if, as if you didn't have any others, but it's impetus enough so you can say to yourself, I want to be healthy enough, strong enough, uh, physically, uh, spiritually, mentally, um, uh, that I want to see what happens here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When you help other people, you take your eyes off your own problems mm -hmm. and everything seems better. Yeah. And you're helping them, generally speaking, because their problems are orders of magnitude in one way or the other, worse than yours. <laughs> And well, it, it, yeah, they can be. Yeah, it it's reminds you. Uh, well, go ahead and I'll tell you. I was going to say it reminds you to be grateful to, for, for the things that you do have. Yeah. You know? There's this, uh, it's a teaching story. Um, it, it's about a village of people, small village of people who come together once a year and they will sit in a big circle around a fire together. And each one will. Uh, bring something to the fire that represents uh, their problems. They'll lay it down in front of them and they'll speak about their problems. Each one lays down something and talks about their problems. They might say, well, my son it has a cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. And then the next one might say, well, my daughter is taking drugs. Or the next one might say, you know, well, my husband is cheating on me whatever mm. it is it doesn't matter bring your problem you lay it down in front of everybody and tell what your problem is and then they say would anybody like to pick up anybody else's problem no i'll take my own mm -hmm. it's like when you hear what other people are going through you're like i can handle my own problems mm. <laughs> and i can't deal with yours but you but each of us gets the problem or the challenge that we need in order to evolve mm -hmm. and become a better person and, and, and learn that lesson that we, all, that we need to learn, specifically us. You know, our problems are customized mm -hmm. <laughs> just for us. It's funny that you mentioned that because uh, when we were out looking at the location of where uh, the new house is going to be built, I was envisioning uh, a backyard that at the center of the backyard had one of those above ground fire units, you know, where you make a fire and everybody fire sits around thing. in a circle mm -hmm. and talks. And, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, that I really, that's one of the things I'm going to get done after we put up a fence, of course, but, <laughs> um, but uh, I want that there mm -hmm. with chairs around it, uh, and just to have kind of that with, and lots of marshmallows to roast over <laughs> yeah. for making s'mores. Yeah. That'll be fun. Yeah. Whether we have people over or not. Well, I used to, you know, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I, I, we recently had a friend, I guess it was last winter, uh, invite us over to the house for uh, dinner and um, and drinks, wine. And at some point they said, why don't we go outside and sit around the fire? You know, mm -hmm. I think they even had marshmallows. Didn't they? Are we talking about um, coffee and Cheryl? Yeah, yeah. Are you talking about the time you went by yourself or when we went to the Christmas party? Did I go by myself? Yeah, before that, like a year before that, you went by yourself. And we sat around that fire pit. Yeah, because we didn't do it around Christmas because it was raining that night. Well, it was frosty. So it, that, was, so it was just me? It was you just you that went, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they wanted to talk to you about... Oh, the newspaper. Something. No, yeah. it was about the uh, the program that Coffee wanted to do. Was it? Yeah. Wow, you have better memory than I do, and I was there. <laughs> I know. Right? I just—I guess—I envisioned that uh, we we do everything together because that's the memory I had. But as we were sitting there, it was freezing. We had to put our jackets on. Mm -hmm. It started snowing, but the fire was warm, and the wine was good, and the conversation was really, you know, interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So I think the last one we'll, we'll cover is choices and consequences, because this whole book is about choice and consequences. It really is. And basically, life is choices and consequences. Uh, Miguel's decision-making process, particularly when he expresses a desire to go home, opens up 
uh, discussion about choices and their consequences. So yeah, let's get into that. You were like, okay, I want, I thought I wanted to do this, but now here I am. I don't have my motorcycle. Don't know where the money is. I don't have my satchel. I don't, uh, I'm kind of like at, at, at my journey's end mm -hmm. here. I don't, exactly know what to do next so i think the best thing to do is go home and isn't it wonderful that you had a home to go to go home to it, that's a good point because when you meet uh not that i meet a lot of them but when you hear stories of homeless mostly teenagers they don't have a home to go to they're not left with that kind of option they're living day to day from from can of tuna to can of tuna you know on the streets not knowing what's going to happen to them and the one thing that they don't have is because of whatever they whatever definition of home they have they don't have the kind of definition of home that would enable them to return home yeah that's what i think what when we put that in the book garrison says well you're not our usual kind of runaway right yeah exactly which is what normally he would find is right. somebody who didn't have a home to go back right to. and that's what he would tell them i don't know what to do with you because i can't send you back home to your parents or or step parents or whatever the yeah. the situation is mm -hmm. after i'm sure after having talked to them he realized mm -hmm. oh it's kind of kind of a pseudo bad boy and we better send him home to mom because he's going to be okay there. Yeah. I mean, for God's sakes, he goes to a Catholic boarding school. How bad mm -hmm. could it be for him? Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right. The the people that can't go, go home are the people that are, uh, that are most troubled. And, and I think some of the issues associated with that is that they become darker and uh, full of resentment and uh, they lack trust in almost everybody. Mm, yeah. Yeah, depends on the choices they make. Right. Again. Yeah. Because I, there are people um, who do go through some very difficult times. Uh, I believe Zig Ziglar was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, really rough uh, teenage life, mm -hmm. and ended up leaving home very young, comparatively young. You know, as a teenager, and uh, you know Tony Robbins, and some. So there's some. You know, there's some lesson there. It's mm -hmm. like, what are you going to choose? Because there are mentors out there who can show you that they went through the same bad beginnings. If not worse. That you did. And they made it out. And now look at them. You know, well, not Zig Ziglar anymore, but he was a right. pretty big deal back when back he was when around. Was. Yeah. And he influenced so many people. Uh, including Tony Robbins. So, uh, and he's just like, um, you know, billionaire probably by now. Uh, but it's, there are choices. And you, if you make the right choices, if you make the honest, um, above board, uh, helpful choices in your life, if you do the right thing, you're going to get on the right path and it's going to take you places. Mm -hmm. So yes, you can choose to be resentful and angry at the world and get on drugs. And that's a choice too. But which ending would you prefer? Mm -hmm. You know, so the positive one. Yeah. Yeah. And there are enough role models out there who can show you that it can be done. And if they can do it, you can do it. So I, I had a friend in the military, and I don't remember his name. And we called him Dan because his last name was Danovich. Mm. Dano, we called him. <laughs> uh, so now this all comes back. And I knew him. He was uh, in the same area of operations with me in Vietnam, although we were at separate fire bases. But every once in a while, we'd run into each other in Canto. Uh, and he had been... You know, he had entered the service because the judge had given him a choice of going to jail or going into the military, which mm -hmm. very, was very mm -hmm. common back then. Like, yeah. they, like you're not going to be anything here. Get into the military, see if you can fix yourself. Mm -hmm. And the woman who was acting, she was a, a court-appointed court attorney, and she was defending him in this case. And um, the judge... Uh, she asked the judge, can I speak with him? But before he makes this decision, can I talk with him? And they they went into another room, and uh, he's, he never mentioned uh, what she said to him, 
but he, she said, she gave me a book. And I thought, well, maybe it's that whole Bible thing. Sometimes people do the Bible. Yeah. And he said, uh, no, it was the book by Zig Ziegler. And I had it with me the day that I entered the service, which basically was the following day. He enlisted the following day, and they took him that day. He was not on the same track as I was. He was uh, uh, three-year. He, and he ended up, uh, as, the, as uh, Vietnam was winding down, they were allowing service members to get out early. They had early outs. Mm -hmm. uh, so he didn't even spend um, an entire three years in. But you could tell just reading that book, and, and he was the kind of kid that I don't think he'd even finished high school. But that had a real change. And we used to, I'd get a letter from him or a postcard every once in a while about what he was doing. And, and you know, his life had normalized. He got a job. Mm -hmm. um, he went back, finished, got his GED and, you know, ended up a manager of a construction company and, you know, that kind of thing. But it was, it was interesting to see that it could take the reading of one book and a judge to say, I'm going to give you a choice here. Yeah. You're either going to go to jail or you're going to join the military. Mm -hmm. And the military... The military, the funny thing about the military is they don't care how you're feeling. They don't care what your problems are. You know, you, you just better do what they say and in your spare time, make a better person of yourself. And um, I'm not going to go into my military thing uh, <laughs> again, but it was interesting to see that one change was made the result of reading the book, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, because it you don't have to go, well, my parents messed me up. Yeah. Well, then move forward. Find another mentor. Right. Find somebody who can be that guiding light for you. If your parents weren't it, find somebody who can be. It was my my father's bookshelf was funny because at the top there was uh, several shelves, but at the top were the things like the the uh, Zig Ziglar books and oh, the, yeah. and how to how to be a better sales person and oh, things yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the middle row was mysteries. And then the lower row was uh, cowboy stories, cowboy <laughs> cowboy novels. Mm -hmm. So was, he, had, he had pretty good reading. He was always, he always had magazines. Mm -hmm. So, and that's where I learned, um, uh, you know, Time, Newsweek, and um, uh, U.S. News and World Report. Mm -hmm. So that was before uh, audio audio books, audio books, <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, I mean, he was just a he was well read and a great conversationalist and funny. You know, he had everything that people would love about uh, somebody like that. And he was a good guy. He would be, you know, I used to meet people in later years and they'd always say, your dad, he would give you the shirt off his back. Wow. Keep your shirt on, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, loneliness and isolation. We talked a little bit about that last week, that uh, you had some time in the jail Uh where you were like, um, this, I don't have anything to do. I'm just sitting here, sitting here and, and had time to think and maybe too much thinking and, hey, can I have something to read? <laughs> There's paper, yeah, jails are the <laughs> jails are the most boring place on the face of the planet, unless mm -hmm. you're somehow defending yourself from some situation. But the few times that I've been in jail, and I want you to know the times I have been in jail were like I'm not a jail bird. I'm not a criminal. I just found myself in, <laughs> like a in, criminal. Yeah, yeah, like a criminal. Uh, that they're boring. They don't. You know, you're lucky if you get time to watch the TV at best. Mm -hmm. The ones that I was in, uh, there was no TV. Yeah. So you had to either find a book or something to read mm. to keep yourself entertained. Two weeks or, and yeah, two weeks and. Just, that would be like a sort of one of those retreats where you just silent retreat kind yeah, of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just think uh, Holiday Inn that hadn't been taken care of. Yeah. Like that's what that was. Yeah. And all the good furniture was gone and all the bad furniture had been put in its place. <laughs> well, okay. Well, so we had an interesting week. We uh, got to talk to our design team for our new home on Monday, pick out some flooring and cupboards and tile and backsplashes and knobs, knobs. We picked knobs and, and handles. Yes. So. We're pretty excited about it. We uh, found out that our home is going to be a zero energy home, which means if we add solar panels to the roof, which it's built for that, it's 
uh, bill that we can easily add them, then we have a zero energy bill that we would have every month. So we'd, we just make payments to the solar panels instead of to the utility company. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty excited about and, that. And it's going, they're actually including a um, installation for a car charger. Right, so yeah, electric vehicle. an electric vehicle charger. charger. So they've in the garage. They've given you the opportunity to be more practical about what you're doing in your in terms of your commitment to yeah. the so we're really climate excited change. About moving into the future like that yeah. and being a little bit better about our carbon footprint. Yeah, yeah. As we, it's older. not just. I mean, we we do as much as we can in terms of recycling, but now we're going to have solar panels installed, and we're going to have Shelly's. Shelly was thinking about getting a hybrid. But now she's thinking about getting a, yeah. um, I was going to say solar vehicle. It's electric like, vehicle. Yeah, yeah, electrical vehicle. And and we have a very good friend. We've talked about her in the past, Janet Bridgers, whose uh, father was one of the, you know, founders of what we now think of as the solar energy industry. Uh, and she's she's very active. She's the one we went to California with um, to do uh, to shoot some footage, uh, interview and B roll footage on the conservation efforts there at. Um, uh, Mormon Beach. Mormon Beach. Uh, but it was exciting because as um, Shelly was uh, listening to what they were offering us in terms of these additions, the ability to install easily install, so they'd be wired for solar panels, automatically wired for an electric car. And the extra larger lumber to hold everything up. And uh, Shelly's response to that is we were in the design meeting. She said, oh, well, I could have a solar-powered car. And she said something like, I'm going to tell Janet about that. She'll be excited about it. And um, and sure enough, when Janet came over a couple of days ago or yesterday, yesterday, yesterday and Shelly told her about it, about it, and Janet really did, oh, you're going to have a solar-powered car. Jumping up and down. She yeah, was so excited. <laughs> she was very excited about that. So but She's been driving a Prius for a long time. For a long so, time, yeah. yeah. So I, I, think, uh, I think it's going to provide some interesting uh, – uh, diversions for us, things that we hadn't even thought about uh, that, that this move is going to result in. And so um, as we go through the process, it's getting progressively more uh, interesting. You know, I brought back a, 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 a book entitled uh, Paddling South Carolina, and I uh, want to get back into that. And <laughs> And uh, Shelly saw a YouTube video about alligators and paddling in South Carolina. <laughs> alligators attacking, <laughs> attacking kayaks. kayakers. Yeah, I'm like no, scary. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, uh, we'll it's going to be. I think it's going to be um, a change in lifestyle uh, for us. Um, I'm starting to empty my house of the things. And uh, uh, today I was talking to the gentleman who does that for us. He he does it estate sales. And uh, I showed him um, in, in my room, I have both a, a um, not a recumbent bike, but a stationary bike. And I have a treadmill. And those are my cold weather solutions to getting my exercise. I was thinking, I'm not going to have that excuse. I don't need that excuse. So mm. I'm probably going to get rid of them. Well, unless uh, it's raining. I mean, they do get more rain than we do. They do get more rain, but it isn't. It but is, they're it, the YMCA is yeah, just up the street. up the street. So there's so, there's yeah. lots of options for us. And I think <laughs> I can get away with all these uh, yeah. this exercise equipment that I have in here and um, look at it another way. So Yeah. Um, we're, so we're excited about it. Yeah. It's getting good. Yeah. So tune in next week to find out more about that. And uh, I'm having an open house on my house this weekend. We've dropped the price a little bit, so it's getting pretty exciting. I uh, hope to sell it this weekend. And uh, 444? 444. Tell them why, how you came to that number. Well, because... <laughs> because in numerology, the angel numbers, 444, is telling me that uh, that's, you know, that telling me and whoever purchases the house that it's uh, new, um, exciting uh, foundation for uh, your family and your life and your dreams are coming true kind of a number. So 444. Yeah. Isn't there somebody's area code that was 444? I don't know. Uh. All right. But I should get that phone number if that's an area code. <laughs> get ready to say, say your good nights. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. And uh, once again, check out our blog uh, every week at blog.agkmedia.studio. And anything else you need to know will be in the uh, description. And we hope that uh, 
you enjoy the show, come back again next week. I, you know what? I, I don't know whether we mentioned it. The house is going to not be ready until June. So we're going to be around New Mexico until uh, at least spring of this year. So if you ever find yourself in the area, let us know. We'll go have a coffee or something. All right? Sit by the fire and tell stories. There you go. Thanks for listening to Our Story, Your Story. We hope you enjoyed hearing our stories and those of our guests. We invite you to share your own stories with us by emailing us at stories at agkmedia.studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time, keep telling your story because your story matters.